Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. For sure, I think if I get to drive more and more and more, uh, for sure, you know, I'm going to feel more comfortable. I nearly told him to calm down in the end. I'm like, mate, you're making me stressed. I'm stressed enough as is. In 2014, Chaz Mostert and Paul Morris won Bathurst. The race finished at almost 6.30 and 5.2 million people were watching at the end of that race. So a quarter of the Australian population watched Chaz win that race. That's a pretty you know, compelling figure to, to drop on anybody. <laughs> From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. And welcome to Inside Supercars with Craig Ravel. Hello, Tony. And Tony Whitlock, great to be here again. Wow, it's been a big week for announcements. Um, although it was a Friday afternoon announcement that uh, Supercar slipped out there, the uh, Super Formula 5000. Yes, I do feel sorry for Tom Howard, who told us last week that he was having Friday off and then you broke the news to him that that announcement was going to be made. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people were very unhappy that they weren't told that announcement was going to be made. And the number of senior journalists have made comment this week about the way that it was unveiled. Um, Some of them not even getting the information, Tony, until Saturday after uh, others had received it on Friday. Yes, indeed. Look, it's interesting because, uh, you know, this has been uh, on the back burner, so to speak, and now slipped onto the front of the oven... Uh, Chris Landon, of course, was announced oh, coming up to two years ago, I would think, in 2015 when he first announced it. He'd been testing, lots of testing at different tracks around Australia. And we now know that uh, Supercar's own version, the Pace uh, promoted, the Pace-owned car built and developed by Oscar Fernando of Supershocks, has uh, been at test tracks as well, um, some successfully, some unsuccessfully. But... It's a, it's a sad day, uh, really, to see yet again in Australia where classes of motor racing with enthusiastic, passionate people putting their money behind it and unfortunately going head-to-head. There can only be one winner, and in fact the possibility is there won't be a winner at all if they both beat each other to death. Well, that is exactly right, and uh, uh, we've seen it with super touring cars, we've seen it with Indy cars, we've seen it in uh, super touring slash New Zealand V8s. It's, well, uh, my experience in motorsport goes back to the 1970s when I was involved and there was a thing called Formula Pacific or Formula Atlantic and they were up against the Formula 5000. So when I left motorsport for 20 years and came back, it was the same 2-litre versus 5-litre. I thought, what the hell's going? They're all happening again. <laughs> it's crazy. Certainly one of the big developments of the week. The other thing that's happening, of course, uh, this week is testing the... Supercars are out there, both at Queensland Raceway and Winton, at each of those states' respective tracks, doing their uh, first real test day of the year, um, where they get their own time with uh, being looked over by a supercar technical man. Um, But it's their test day of the year to get ready for the uh, middle of the season, where we, of course, kick off in Darwin and then Townsville. Um, and it's an uh, interesting thing because also the uh, Super 2 cars will be there, having a, a shake, those who are doing the wildcard entries. Uh, and where are those wildcards coming? They're coming in Townsville, aren't they, in Darwin? Uh, Darwin, yes. So Jack LeBrock, who will be racing up there in Darwin, uh, is testing the Ultima, which uh, Bryce Fullwood, I think, was also running uh, today. So there's a lot to talk about next week, how the testing panned out, because everyone's looking for speed. And, and of course, the uh, DJR Team Penske cars are looking to make sure that they've still got the advantage in speed over the opposition. So uh, they've all been out on the track today. You have to wonder when uh, Red Bull Holden Racing and DJR Team Penske are both at the same day, at the same track, how much foxing and sandbagging is actually going on at the track. And perhaps next week we can uh, find out exactly how much sandbagging went on. Indeed, indeed. And we've got a great opportunity being officials week. We spoke to a number of people last week, including the CEO of CAMS, Eugene Arocca, talking about pre-announcement of the uh, Formula 5000, the uh, Super Formula 5000, talking about that and what CAMS' position was. He explained some of that as the development. As well, uh, we spoke to the DSA, and that's Craig Baird, who is, of course, 
no longer the observer, but he's now an advisor and in fact points out that he's an advisor to the drivers. So he's there to help them and explain the situation on the various things that come before the stewards through the driving advisor. And I, I will, Tony, say to you that... We do have a language warning on that interview. He is a very colourful and expressive speaker. And uh, well, he's not Thomas Mazira, but gee, he's getting close. Maybe a couple of years in that chair and uh, he will sound a lot more like Thomas with the expletives. But uh, there is a language warning on that, uh, on that interview later in the show. Craig, like many New Zealand motorsport people, been involved, involved for quite some time, very passionate about it and uh, enjoys enormously... Uh, being involved at supercars at this level, having been a driver at the top end since the uh, early uh, or mid-90s, rather. And thirdly, on our list of uh, officials we're talking to is Tim Schenken. Tim, of course, has been the uh, race director, first of all, for the Australian Touring Car Championship back in 87 he started, when he'd returned from Europe and Formula One duties and building Tiga sports cars. And he's back telling us about uh, his position as a race director, how long he's going on the job. And he was, interestingly, when I spoke to him, he was on his way to Nürburgring. He has quite a number of duties within the FIA and their world championships, including Formula E, uh, world touring cars, where he sits in as an official, either as a steward or in, in some other capacity in those categories. So he has enormous experience and enormous wealth of experience that he brings to the role. So after that, we'll be uh, hearing from... Eugene Walker, the CEO Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think, is a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian title since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm David Reynolds. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. And welcome back to Inside Supercars. We have the CEO of CAMS, Eugene O'Rocker. Welcome on board. Uh, thanks very much, Tony. Glad, glad to be on board. It's an opportune to be talking to you today as the announcement that finally, it seems like it's been in development a long time, supercars are now point scoring at Albert Park. CAMS, will be happy with this? Absolutely, and uh, even though we weren't part of the actual formal announcement, I can tell you that CAMS has been working behind the scenes via the FIA and uh, with the new management company for Formula One to make this happen. We felt that if it's a premier event like Formula One, uh, the premier category should be on there as a point-scoring championship round, and we're thrilled that uh, finally the new... Uh, with the new uh, operators coming in. Uh, We had a fairly historic meeting at uh, Albert Park, or sorry, uh, during the Grand Prix, and this was was, uh, was brought up, and uh, we're thrilled to see within a month or two they've supported it, and uh, the AGPC, V8s and CAMs are all very happy. Wonderful. It seemed like an inevitability. The moment they built that new pit facility exclusively for the V8s, there seemed to be that inevitability that was going to happen. Yeah, and I think importantly, um, the new uh, Formula One group, we don't know if they're called the management group, because it used to be FOM, of course, but the new Formula One group is pretty keen to... Which is Liberty, Liberty Liberty, Media. Liberty, Liberty Media. We're we're very keen, and we had a fantastic dinner with them, the FIA um, and uh, the AGPC in Melbourne on the Saturday night of the Grand Prix, and they were very keen to really retain a strong Australian flavour and uh, give it some credibility, and uh, what they saw at the track and at the event... Um, vindicated their decision in the end to uh, support the championship status of the V8s and so all the supercars. So, as I said, there's been a bit of work in the behind the scenes for the last two or three years. I know Andrew Westacott has been working away, and we've been talking to Jean Todd. So it was fantastic that it all finally came together, and now we've got a premier category on a premier event uh, running for points. It certainly seems like Liberty, um, with one of their early moves, being the, the, the numbering of the Formula One cars, which seems to be something that's been missing for a long time. Um, yeah, and look, I think they're going to bring a lot more to the table. I, I, like any good business operators, they'll probably, you know, uh, sort of sit back to some degree, watch what's been happening, understand how it works, and then slowly 
introduce some of the um, innovations and the uh, the activations that they want to introduce. Everything about these guys suggests that they're very switched on and are going to certainly make Formula One more engaging than it's been to date, even though it's a wonderful product. And little things like the numbers and uh, the social media activation, uh, working with the promoters and the organisers on the ground to make sure that the events are more than just Formula One are all indications that we've got a really positive period of time for Formula One and for the, uh, and for the Australian Grand Prix. I had the uh, luxury recently, and I could call it a luxury, of having a good conversation with Tim Schenken. He was in Europe uh, heading, I think, to Nürburgring for a 24-hour race there. Um, and talking about how he'd become ill in, in Perth, and subsequently Michael Massey had stepped into his role as his deputy, was there able and willing and capable. I'd just like to know, I asked Tim the question about how long does he think he'll have in the job, and he said he's been told that he's, it's as long, it's, he's as long as he wants it sort of thing. Does CAMS have a, an official position, I mean, or is it just a question of when Tim makes a decision? Oh, look, we, it's a bit of both. Um, you know, obviously, if he makes a decision, it uh, certainly provides greater clarity. But my view has always been that age um, should never be a hindrance on the capacity for someone to do their job well. And from day one, Tim might have been a little bit nervous of a new CEO coming in and he'd been here for some 27 years. He might have been justifiably nervous. And I sat down with him very early and said, look, Tim, as far as I'm concerned and the limited information I've got already... Now, you are the preeminent race director for the preeminent category, and all I will do is support you whilst you're able to do the job and start to consider succession. I'm looking at succession for my own role. So why wouldn't I be looking for succession for someone who's been with us for 27 years? Yeah. And he understood that, and my commitment to him is that I would be the first person to tap him on the shoulder if I felt that he was not performing his role to the level that would be expected of Tim Schenken. Yes. And he understands that. Um, so we have an understanding, and in the last two years I've been working with V8s, or supercars, we call them V8s, yes. To start to identify the successor, and we believe that Michael Massey uh, represented the best opportunity going forward. And in fact, in Barbagallo in 2016, uh, Tim handed over the reins for that event just as a sort of start of a process. And uh, as it turned out, one year later, we actually needed to parachute Michael Massey in. So this has been a planned succession, yep. but the timeline is not determinate. Yes. We will rely to some degree on Tim's own standards and our own standards and one of the things I said to Tim is you've got a wonderful legacy an historic legacy in motorsport you will not want to ruin that by letting the standards drop under your watch and not being able to do something about it because people tend to forget the good stuff and remember the bad stuff and you do not want to leave your legacy as being the one who wasn't performing on the job and had to be shunted out or didn't leave a suitable replacement in his wake because that's an added responsibility that I felt he had. And he's uh, embraced that, that, that understanding. But as far as I'm concerned, if Tim Schenken is still capable of doing his job to a level that is acceptable and, uh, and appropriate when he's 80, then as far as I'm concerned, as long as I'm CEO, that's OK. Which, in fact, that brings up the question about um, training uh, across the board because motorsport uses far more than many other sports and a large number of officials in many different guises. Um, you know, we're flaggies, scrutineers, the whole gamut of, of range, communications, medical. Um, CAMS has, must have a very large program in place for the training and ongoing training and development of people for this. Yeah, we... we to be brutally honest, Tony, I think it's one of the hallmarks of this organisation that we are able to pull on essentially 9,500 employees who don't cost us much other than a bit of love and affection yep. to do our bidding. And without those 9,500 flaggies and scrutineers and race directors, clerks, of course, this sport would crumble mm. and it would simply not survive. And I think the competitors know that and to some degree the officials know that. What CAMS has been doing over the last two years is actually... Um, arresting the slide in our numbers of, of officials and now investing into uh, developing a program to recruit, or retain and reward. And only last month the board received a very good high-level strategic document from our officials manager um, which will mean spending a bit of money but also uh, getting consistency in the quality of the 
officials we have, providing them with more recognition and actually providing them with a pathway that to some degree, Tony, hasn't really been as clear as it should be. Um, there's a bit of an old boys club, uh, or it's sort of a suggestion of an old boys club. I don't cop that. I reckon that's uh, not something that I want to be associated with. And so we're looking over the next 12 to 18 months to roll out everything from a professional standards observer, from mentoring, from specific pathway programs, specific training. And one interesting fact that I don't want to bore you too much, but we, we, we did a, a sort of review of our training programs for officials and across some 34 different training programs we held around the country, we had 24 different speakers. Wow, right. You can imagine the inconsistency that might flow in both for quality and the detail when you've got 24 different presenters doing 34 different um, uh, sort of programs. What we're going to work on is try to get 6 to 10 to 12 presenters so we'll have a far greater level of consistency in that training. That's just a small example yeah, yeah. of doing some tweaking but the most critical thing for us is to make sure that our officials understand that there's a pathway from grassroots up to Formula 1 World Rally Championship or supercars and that we give them that opportunity. I think and there'll be some people who might uh, switch off their radio or turn off their television if they hear this and that is we can't have the same people turning up to the Grand Prix year on year on year on year. There's got to be some regeneration. Yep. And whilst we recognise that some people are entitled to say, well, I've been going for 20 years, they should start to think about who's going to be coming next. And so there's going to be a fair bit of work done behind the scenes to really put our arms around these wonderful, hard-working, tireless individuals that, um, you know, we really... And we're, we're going to do things like recognise volunteers at our awards nights, at the Hall of Fame night, we do uh, award a volunteer of the year sort of spirit of sport. So I think that uh, we're really lifting our eyes on this because we believe it's an important element of our sport that we need to protect. And with the new generation of Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, uh, not wanting to necessarily spend eight hours at a track for four days in a row, we need to find new ways of engaging with them and, and getting them involved in the sport. And of course this brings into line um, where CAMS has supplied or trained, helped, assisted Grand Prix in Malaysia and Bahrain and there must be a a vast Singapore as well, there must be an enormous pool that you can draw on from there. Well and and, and it's a very good point, not many people know that but CAMS actually uh, has trained many Grand Prix promoters and organisers around the, the Southeast Asia region, only as recently as Russia two years ago. But the wonderful opportunity that our volunteers get is to go overseas as part of the CAMS team and be a part of a 40 or 50 or 60 person team helping to put on a Grand Prix in another country. The experience that these wonderful volunteers get all for free, even though we're using their time of course, is priceless. And I can tell you that I've had a number of volunteers come up to me and say, I was in Korea in 2011, one of the best times of my life, or I was in Russia in 2015. Thank you very much for doing that. So apart from the pathway up the ladder to preeminent Australian events, there exists an opportunity to go to some countries in our sort of immediate vicinity and be a part of a wonderful team of trainers that are world-regarded, world-recognised as the best. And again, I think that's an important element of what we can sell to our volunteers to make sure that it's not just about going to Sandown, but it could be about going to Bahrain. Yeah. Actually, I must just tell you... um uh, predating your involvement at um, CAMS, uh, I don't know if it's your predating your motorsport involvement, but in 1985, um, when uh, the Grand Prix headed to Adelaide, uh, Mal Hemmerling, do you know the man? I know Mal, very yep. well. He gave me a quote, because I wrote an article about Bob Jane and his involvement in that 1980 and 82 to 84 Australian Grand Prix that were held at Calder. And Mal Hemmerling told me, and in fact he was on a trip with Tim Schenken and Colin Bond in Central Australia, and I talked to him, interviewed him on a radio telephone. And Mal gave me a quote which was that if Bob Jane hadn't held those Grand Prix at Calder in the early 80s, that the Grand Prix may not have come, the Formula One may not have come to Australia. Well, and that's an important important element that um, people do forget, but often we're seeing warring with Bob, and we have warred with Bob over the yeah, years. Yeah. I've read the history of it. Bob's yeah. a very passionate man, but I do agree yeah. that, you know, the composite parts make up for a wonderful sport, and those Grands Prix that were held at Calder certainly prepared us 
Because you can imagine if we had the first, you know, 85 in South Australia and we were underprepared or didn't have the requisite talent. Fast forward 30 years later, we're considered the best in the world. And yeah. The value of a Grand Prix, supercars, World Rally Championship, not only for the sport and the competitors, but for our officials, is preeminent. Yes. And, and I hear members say, oh, Cam's, you, you care too much about the Grand Prix or you care too much about supercars. Well, apart from giving us significant funds, they also present the ideal place that many of our members want to go as an official. And so, therefore, they're very important in the matrix of motorsport to have those high-profile events so people can really say, oh, I want to go to the Grand Prix eventually as an official. How do I get there? So that's part of the story. Full circle, in fact, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today about was Formula Ford. Um, the largest uh, category at Winton recently, two weeks ago, was Formula Ford. It had 31 cars there. Yep. Um, comes through and, and obviously changes were made by CAMS to the way in which it was structured in Australia. And then we go to Phillip Island and there's 12 cars. Now, one of the great things about the Formula Four down there was a whole bunch of new young drivers. Yep. Um, and that's terrific that Formula Four has brought that in. But how do you sit with your third year of Formula Four and just not getting the numbers that probably you should have? Well, look, it's, a, it's an interesting and difficult conundrum. We've got a wonderful historic connection with Formula Ford that has, at its peak, um, people were paying up to $300,000 to compete in, even though there were opportunities for people to compete at a lower cost. Yep. And a mandate, to some degree, by the FIA, excuse me, by the FIA, to introduce Formula 4, and if you didn't, you sort of did, you didn't do, so you did so at your peril. Right now, there are 12 Formula 4 championships around the world, and there's no doubt that three of them in Europe are dominating with 35 to 40 numbers. Right. Competitors. Um, we suffer a little bit from distance and cost. There's no doubt that the appetite for spending up to $200,000 to compete in Formula 4 is not an easy thing to achieve in a country of only 23, 23 million people. Yes. That said, do we, if you look at the last three years since Formula 4 has been operating, I'm informed by people who know better that there are more young Australians competing overseas at either Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula Renault than there have ever been in our recent history. Right. And I've got no doubt that the, that the advantage of, dra- of racing in a Formula 4 in Australia in 2016 and stepping into a Formula 4 in Germany or Italy or England has to be some advantage that you wouldn't have gotten if you were driving a Formula Ford. So my view would be that we are not going to ignore Formula Ford. We don't believe that it, it is deserving of a status as a national championship when we've already elected to go with the Formula 4 as our national championship. I hope that they can live together cooperatively. I think they're two different markets. I think that they're... uh, Like right now, we've got 13 competitors uh, for the rest of the year. One of them's from New Zealand. That may be part of a solution, including more from New Zealand, and we're talking to the New Zealanders about it. But what I don't want to be is the country that decided to stick with Formula Ford and not pursue Formula 4 to the detriment of Australian motorsport. I will, I believe, Tony, that in five years' time, Formula 1, Formula 3 will be full of Formula 4 graduates right. and there won't be too many coming through from Formula Ford. Right. So, okay. unfortunately, um, being in a position of making decisions can sometimes be unpopular, And but we believe that the investment in these young drivers is bearing fruit and uh, I would hope that the Formula Ford fraternity accept that they can be a part of a matrix and it could be that the kid comes out of carts, does a year in Formula Ford, then oscillates into Formula 4 is something that might be, you know, hopefully appropriate for the future. But CAMS believes its responsibility to support young drivers internationally is important. If we don't have a Daniel Ricciardo, our Formula, our, our Grand Prix isn't as attractive. Yes. Without an attractive Grand Prix, we don't get the flow down. Yeah. We need heroes. Yeah, and yeah. So I'm not going to pick a fight with the Formula Ford people again. Good luck to them. Keep doing what you're doing. We'll keep doing what we're doing, and we believe that within the next couple of years we'll be getting 15 to 18 drivers in Formula 4. It's a big investment by CAMS, but we think that our responsibility is to invest in youth. Okay, which brings me, in fact, to the very last topic today, and that's the Formula 5000. As you would be well aware, 
Um, Chris Lambden had put in place uh, developments and bought the car and has done an extensive testing program. And lo and behold, now supercars, I believe, are going to announce in the next week that they have a car which has been funded by, I can't remember the man behind Pace, I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, now the car that uh, Lambden has uh, developed um, is uh, an ex-Formula Nippon. Uh, it's a, uh, a sanctioned FIA chassis um, and has all the things in place that would make it appear to be a car that is ready to, to run. And, you know, they can start the uh, machine to produce a dozen or so of these. On the other side is a car that has been developed totally in, uh, in a different situation. Now, what's Cam's position on possibly um, sanctioning both of these cars? Well, I guess the difference is between sanctioning a category or sanctioning the cars. We've indicated to Chris that um, we believe that using a 2009 chassis that may have complied with FIA obligations and regulations back then may be problematic in 2017 if he wants a standalone category. What we've encouraged to do is to certainly pursue his ambition, but we could imagine that the category, or sorry, his cars, could compete under a Formula Libra. Um, and we've indicated that in writing to him. What we did say to him is that if he got 10 or 12 cars and wanted to make a submission to the CAMS board, he was very welcome to do so. However, we did say that for CAMS to mandate a standalone category, we would need to be satisfied that the FIA safety requirements would be met. Now, Chris may say, well, the 2009 tub does meet those requirements. The problem is that since 2009, you would know better than I, Tony. Yeah, yeah. But the safety, uh, the safety uh, sort of uh, developments have certainly accelerated, uh, and one would question whether or not following the blueprint of a 2009 car will meet the 2017 obligations. Yeah. With supercars, what they've said to us is that they would like to run a category, but they would meet the FIA requirements for 2017 because, as you know, apparently they're creating their own tub, building their own car to their own blueprint, and what we've said to them is pretty much similar to, uh, to Chris, and that is before we would announce this as a standalone category, we need two things, numbers and compliance with the FIA standards. Which means it's got to be tested. Got to be tested. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I can't go into the specifics, but I'm led to believe that uh, there's no way known that the supercars version could get onto a supercars calendar event under the FIA auspices unless it's been tested in and meets the requirements of the FIA. Right. They, they understand that. Um, the difference, I guess, with Chris is that um, he would also need to comply with that if he wanted a standalone category. So it's a really difficult position. We've got two players in the market, one that's indicating that their brief or their intention would be to meet BFIA requirements, the other one that's saying, well, I think I've met them because back in 2009 these cars met the standards. It's a tricky one, and at the same time they're competing for the same buyers. Yeah. And what can CAMS do? We said at the moment we don't have a category, we don't have a formal application for a category as such. Um, supercars have indicated that they want to meet the standards. So at the moment, um, they're the ones that have sort of given us most confidence that they can actually get the FIA tick when the time is necessary. Yes. All right, well, we'll obviously watch this space with uh, bated breath and uh, hope it all sorts itself out. Never easy in motorsport. That's one thing I've discovered. I've been involved in sport for 20 years, but the intricacies and the uh, the uh, sort of idiosyncrasies of motorsport are very unique to sport I, generally. I spent my uh, early 20s and uh, wanting to be a race car mechanic, and when I left, there was a debate in Australia between Formula Pacific and Formula 5000. Fast forward, I didn't make a career as a race car mechanic, went to advertising and marketing. Fast forward, I came back and started publishing uh, race facts in the uh, mid-90s, and lo and behold, there's still a two-litre versus five-litre argument going on. I thought, what the heck is this all about? Some things change and some things stay the same. Absolutely. One thing I can say is that motorsport's very passionate, and with passion comes a lot of ups and downs and pros and cons, and we just got to try and manoeuvre our way and work our way through it all. Thank you so much, Eugene Rocker, for being on Inside Supercars. I hope we can come back later in the year and there's, uh, some of these things may have changed and just get an update from you. Always a pleasure, Tony, and thanks very much. And that's an insight into CAMS that we very rarely get an opportunity to hear from. And after the break, we'll be coming back with Craig Baird in, in his new job, 
as the DSA of supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do after, um, take the win off him. So, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Rapsodata family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. This interview with Craig Baird. It has some colourful language in it. Tony caught up with him at Phillip Island a few weeks ago. So listener discretion is very much advised. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. We're here with Craig Baird, who is today a competitor in Australian GT with Scott Taylor and has a very different role to the one he had in last time he was in Supercars, and that is, is now the DSO. DSA. DSA, sorry. The Driving Standards... Advisor. Advisor, right, okay. Now, Craig's uh, obviously competed in Australia for some years, New Zealander originally, um, but lived here since 19... I had a base here after coming back in 96, 97. 97. Mm-hmm. Started out with Team Kiwi? No, I actually started out with the BMW squad and the two leaders. Of course stuff. you did, of yeah, course. So I, I, I sort of came, yeah, it was mainly in two With leaders. Lyle Williamson, with, with of course. With Lyle and the Diet Coke stuff and... Then I was between here and South Africa, and then I based here for a year, and then yeah. Back and to you, you actually raced in that first time um, against the two cars. You were uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Bradham and Paul Morris. Yep. And you were in the third car. Correct. Yeah. Right. I remember a lot until they kicked me out. Yes, indeed, indeed. Anyway, so that was a while ago, and uh, leading into this role as DSA, you were DSO in GT3 and Carrera Cup. Yeah, so obviously I've had an involvement for Porsche for quite some time. So when I was racing Career Cup, I was the DSO for GT3 Cup Challenge mm-hmm. and then started doing the, the DSO stuff for Career Cup as well. And, and that was a good learning curve to come to this job then? Well, the biggest thing was, yeah, be, uh, you, I certainly wouldn't want to just go into V8 land um, or supercar land without having seen how the race control works. And that slow progression through GT3 and Carrera Cup was nice because um, race control certainly works in a totally different way than what I, as a competitor, have ever seen. Um, we're always down in the pit lane, just uh, or the pit garage, just throwing rocks up there. So we're not. Uh, you see it from a different side, and you you you, um, you learn a little bit of respect of just how many people come together to make a motor racing meeting yep. happen. Yep, yep. And your expectations on this year? I mean, obviously you were learning a new job, albeit one modified from previous categories. It changed, though, this year, didn't it, the role that you're in now? Yeah, the DSA. uh, Look, at the end of the day, what people don't understand is I am on the driver's side. And I make a, a, a strong point to that because I'm not there for a hanging or to open the trap door up on someone. If someone hasn't done anything wrong, I'm there to be on their side and explain to the whether it's the IPO or steward. Ha- having been in the situation Correct. yourself when you're going down the inside of somebody and you are enough, but suddenly Correct. the door closes or whatever. And people always talk about the, the famous word consistency. There's no such thing as consistency because every track's different, every corner's different. Yeah. There's second gear corners, there's fifth gear corners. What might be a small tap at a second gear corner is nothing. A small tap at turn eight at Adelaide's massive. So I get sick of the word, oh, we need consistency. You don't want consistency. What you need is someone that's smart enough and goes in with an open mind that if there's a penalty or if someone's guilty, to be able to look at both sides. And I assess probably a lot more than most the data the driver inputs because television... You know, I can look at something on television straight away. I think something's happened, but yeah. if I'm not 100 percent sure, yeah. just post race it. If it's black and white, 
do it in the race. Yes. And that's the biggest thing we've done. If we take all the terminology out of it, we've got small, medium and large. Mm-hmm. If you do a small incident, it's five seconds. A medium one's 15. You can play it out in your pit stop. You can pay it. You can race on, especially for some of the longer races. And then, you know, for someone that's completely cocked up, um, old school drive-through penalty. One of the things this year is, it seems evident, a number of times where you'd see an, see an incident, uh, someone going down the inside, and you think, oh, you know, he's not up to the B pillar or the C pillar or whatever sort of thing. And yet, later on, seeing that footage, you suddenly see that, oh, the guy was up enough, and the bloke actually closed the corner on him. Correct. And that's, the onboard cameras has been an enormous change in that way, hasn't it? It has. The onboard camera is one thing, but, but sometimes you ke- don't want to make that decision because... Um, camera angles are, are very strange things okay. and camera angles one thing a lot of the time I need the onboard which is post race if I think I need the onboard it's definitely post race and more importantly I can drag the data out and we have you know good data guys within supercars that does does the analysis on the data and I can get all the information um, I need to make a proper decision I've also been in a commentary box where I've made opinions on something and it may appear that way for a start, and then, you know, we're all experts. This is the problem. With social media, everyone's an expert 12 hours after the event. And I'm an expert 12 hours after the event too. But unlike most codes, we can't blow the whistle, stop the ball, and ask the people upstairs, go downstairs, ask the guy on the sideline, ask the driver, ask the, ask the player that got the head-high tackle on we can't do that. We're, it's a moving target all the time. So I hear it all the time where, oh, you know, some wires and some decisions are made during the race and some are after the race. It's very, very simple. Black and white during the race. Um, if, if I'm not 100% sure on something, um, you no know, use having a hanging and then trying to go back on it later. Yeah. So, as I say, on the driver's side, um, unless they're total dicks. You're the winningest career cup driver ever in the world of Porsche. Mm-hmm. Um, was it six championships? Six. Oh well, I won. I won eleven in total. Yeah. So um, between New Zealand and, and Australia, right? Okay. So you made a decision to step down from that win. Uh, look, I wasn't driving the last. Uh, the the nine nine one career car didn't reward my driving style at all. I was yeah. sort of way too aggressive for it. Um, yeah, I just wasn't enjoying it. And then I got an opportunity to do some. Um, GT racing with Scott Taylor. Yep. So I thought, well, I can do the GT racing and work with Porsche, you know, right. race okay. control. So it's yeah. sort of kind of had the best of both worlds. And and you're happy with this move? This gives you the racing that you want. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Look, you're heading to fifty. So you're kidding yourself in any sport if you think when you're heading to fifty you're getting quicker. You're not. You might be getting smarter or do things slightly different. Um, as Scotty always says to me, look, you've run my car for two years. You've never even driven it off the road. Yeah. Um, much wood, you know what I mean, but. Um, it's not a job interview for me. I get on well with Scotty on track, off track. Uh, he enjoys his racing. Um, the results don't change his life Monday morning. Yeah. Um, so it's important that uh, we sort of roll through and have a bit of fun. But obviously I've still got a an interest outside of just GT racing with supercars. And I think the biggest thing is, um, speaking with most of the drivers, they... They know I've been a prick on track, I've been good on track, I've done both. So you sort of send a thief to catch a thief, and I'm not denying I've received plenty and I've dished plenty out. Um, And a lot of the times you have to go back. You have to go back, it might be a lap, you might have to go back three corners. It's not just that incident, because things... preview to it, yeah. Correct. Uh, Take into consideration tyre degradation at places like Perth. People go, oh, it's a bump and run. Well, I'm not... I don't allow bump and runs, but when a car comes out of the pits and it's three seconds a lap quicker, it's not, if they're going to pass you, it's when. So if they bump you, they just pass you 20 metres earlier. So I'm not going to give the guy a penalty for it. So I'm fairly flexible on things. As I say, I get really pissed off with the consistency thing because everything is different that comes into my office. So why should a pit lane infringement be the same for an entry at a fifth gear corner at Adelaide to a second gear corner at Perth they're different, one's a de-accelerating zone, one's an accelerating zone Um, so your choices become very different from a driver. It's interesting that in Formula 1 it's only been a few years that they actually took on the same thing that's been happening in Australia a lot longer 
you're having a DSO, DSA. Yep. Um, that Formula One gets ex-drivers now in those roles, and, and you know, Alan Jones is on that list as well. I think the biggest thing is you, you need to take it from a driver's perspective. I think sometimes you also need drivers that are and I'm not putting anyone down or up or myself on a pedestal you need current experience in those cars because what AJ finds happens in a race car look the actual outright incident might be the same but there's a lot of things electronically that are different um, that can catch them out sometimes you sort of see an incident and go, you know, whether it be DRS there's, there's things that they've never experienced so I find that a little bit hard but the, the thing from a driver's point of view is I I always thought upstairs was out to get everyone yep. I can tell you how it works it's the other teams pull a pin out roll it under the desk or roll it in the truck or roll it in the garage or under the car of every other competitor whether that be through the race pre-race they pull a pin yep. they want something enforced but they want everyone else to make look like the bad eggs yeah, and right. it's not me it's not the stewards it's yeah. not Tim Schenken it's not Michael Massey it always comes down to the teams if they want a pit lane line policed they start it yeah. A bulletin comes out, they sign for it, and then when someone fucks up, yeah. they come back yeah, yeah, yeah. and blame <laughs> yes. us. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, mm. you were the guys in the manager's meeting that brought the whole thing up and asked for it to be policed. Mm. So there's, there's so much stuff goes on, and it always seems... I always say I laugh because it's always Tim Schenken's head. Tim Schenken this, Tim Schenken that. Tim Schenken runs the race. Yeah, yeah. He's not out looking for people bumping and running and all that that's me that's Michael Massey it's the stewards yes the poor old Tim cops are absolute brunt of things that the guys downstairs just don't even realise how, how it works I, I talked to him the other day when he was in France and uh the interesting thing is, of course, that um, because of his other responsibilities with World Touring Cars, with Formula E and other series, he does more racings per meeting than most people in Australia. Correct. Yeah. But look, he's there to run the race. Michael Massey and I are there to basically look and enforce a rule book that the teams, the commission and the board and everyone have made. We didn't make those rules. And everyone wants us to enforce that book until it's their turn. And when it's their turn, oh no, it's a racing incident. And when I come back to social media, social media just makes me laugh because it's always someone's... It's like going go-karting. My mum never thought I did anything wrong. And I was an absolute asshole when I was racing go-karts and I tipped that many people over. But in my mum's eyes, I was always right. And that's what happens now in the teams. Instead of employing a driver and kicking their ass, they go back and they pat their head and they justify how their driver's right. Mm. even when they're black and white wrong yeah, yeah. that's the part that annoys me because sometimes the real good drivers come in and I won't mention names they put their hand up they say hey I know I'm wrong yeah. you know early guilty plea means a shitload to me yeah. sitting there and telling me I did nothing wrong oh, yeah, when yeah, you're yeah. black yeah. and white guilty is, is, is a no go zone yeah. Okay, this year you get uh, your New Zealand fix with the two final rounds of Australian Endurance Championship and GTs. Yep. Any other New Zealand racing? No, no. Obviously, go there with, uh, with supercars as well. Um, so you've no. got three weekends. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's weird. New Zealand's just the the beating themselves to oblivions with diff- different categories, and we had a good V8 thing going, and and then it all ended up in court, and yeah, the. The strangest part is the people they were fighting. Like for that super tourist thing, when you got Shane Van Gisburg and Greg Murphy, you know the Heimgardens, myself. There was um, you even think Holdsworth, Slady, McLaughlin, racing yeah. super tourists. Yeah. I think the numbers have spoken. Then you end up fighting in court with yeah. people that didn't even end up racing the cars they wanted to push through. Yes. Yeah. So they should be hung. 
Yeah. There needs to be a hanging in New Zealand because they absolutely destroyed something that could have been very, very good. The one thing that's still a shining light is the Toyota Series. Yeah, Toyota Series is good. Is worldwide has enormous respect. People come, you know, I mean, there's two guys in Formula One now who've both graduated from there, Lance Stroll and Daniel Kvyat. Almost Max Verstappen nearly got there. Um, so it really does have something over Australia, um, which, you know, still doesn't have a, a category. A Toyota Racing Series is really, really good. And it's the, it's, the, it's the winter test schedule for all the Europeans. Yeah. A bit like in the... When I was racing Formula Atlantic, it was all yes. the Americans came down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Europeans as well. Verstappen was down there. You know, yeah, we yeah. had we, yeah, yeah. we had a lot of um, sort of guys that made it to F1 or Indy cars come through New Zealand because it was just a nice compact series. I think that's the biggest thing. Mm. They haven't stretched it out. It's a six-week program. It always has been. Bang, bang, bang. Get out of there. Done. Yeah. You no mucking around. Yeah. All right, wonderful. Um, and uh, as far as you're aware, you'll be doing this same sort of program next year? I'd like to because I think it takes a year or two to actually get the drivers to understand how I work, how I don't have consistency. Yeah. And I'll underline that because it pisses me off. I have, As I said earlier, I have to be inconsistent to be consistent. And the other part is, oh, why did that guy get a five-second penalty? And why did that one get a 15-second penalty? Because sometimes the, 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 the penalty has to have an effect. Yes. That's balanced. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't just go 15 for everybody. Yeah. Because if it finishes under a safety car, 15 seconds means someone's coming first to last. Mm. So there's no consistency in the penalties either. Yes, we have a range of penalties we can use, but we want the penalty to have the right effect, not just fuck someone over completely. Yeah. The penalty may be five seconds because the field was so compressed at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no point as we go through the season giving championship points to someone that's running 25th. Yes. Because they don't give a shit. Yeah. But when I give them grid spots or, you know, and, and you go into that toolbox and uh, and that's Michael's job and that's where Michael is very, very good. Yep. He, 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 he is flexible to make it, to make the end result consistent. Yes. But the actual penalty can't be consistent. Yeah. All right, wonderful. That's great talking to Craig Baird. DSA and Australian GT Enduro driver. Thank you very much. After this break, we'll come in and hear from Tim Schenker, a man with enormous experience. No man really has more experience in our category. 27 years at the helm as a race director. Tim Schenker. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every, every year I see Jackie Stewart at the Grand Prix and I just remind myself... Of, of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Brabham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au Hi, I'm Todd Kelly. Hi, I'm Fabian Coulthard and you're listening to Inside Supercars. We're tonight talking with Tim Schenken on Inside Supercars to race director Tim Schenken ex-Formula 1 driver Tim Schenken and Cam's official of uh, 30 plus years is that right? Oh, since 84 84 you returned to Australia yes 84 so what's that you can work it out yeah yeah it's 33 years um, which is uh, an amazing history and it's one in which uh, almost that um, I started this, this whole journey was looking into your past is um, the extraordinary thing is your career as an official has gone much further than your career went. Not that you, you reached great heights there, of course, winning scoring points and podiums in Formula One, but a lot longer career as an official than you were as a race driver. Not usual. Well, that's easier in a way because your life as a professional sportsman or your time as a professional sportsman almost any sport is, is not that long mm-hmm. um, I guess you guess you could extend it um, as a driver into doing sort of lesser categories or whatever but yeah. my aim was always, uh, my dream was always Formula 1 and once I uh, uh, lost that opportunity it was never the same so I retired quite uh, happily in 77 I was, I was, yes. going, I was ready to retire yep. and then of course as an official you, you know it's, it's, different, it's a different life and a different uh, uh, 
difficult physical requirements, I guess you could say. So um, it's easier to stay on. It's it's similar though to say cricketers and footballers in that not many actually make the transition from competing to becoming an official in that sport. Um, you know, and we can only think. Oh, I can only think of uh, Jason uh, Bagwana, Craig Baird, Cam Conville, Thomas Mazira. Not a lot of those who've retired have made the transition, and they're they're only in part time roles. Yes, um, I mean, the thing for me, I fell in love with motor sport when I was twelve. <laughs> That's really all I know. Um, it's uh, I, I love it. I still love it today. It's an incredible challenge motor racing and the role I've got now as race director with supercars or the um, clerk of the course for the Australian Grand Prix or I'm in Europe at the moment, I'm a steward uh, for um, a round of the World Touring Car Championship and then two weeks later I'm also one of the permanent stewards for Formula E so it's, uh, it's I wouldn't say it's easy to do but you know to be in something that you love uh, is easy Taking on those roles, you've also got the role within CAMS in Australia, which is your five-day-a-week job normally. Is that right? Well, you're almost seven days if you include... Yes, of course. ...supercar championships <laughs> yes, of course. and the races you go to. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And the, your but, role but, in CAMS is what? Well, my title is uh, Director Racing Operations, but my principal role is uh, the supercar race director, uh, the Grand Prix... Um, where I'm also chairman of the organising committee, so uh, once the race is over, uh, you've got two months off and you have a debriefing and then you're into the planning for the the next event, in this case for 2018. Then my role with the FIA, I'm vice president of the Circuits Commission. I've been a long-standing member of the the Touring Car Commission and then I have uh, uh, a number of appointments uh, with the FIA, uh, as I say, as a steward, but I'm also doing track inspections. So I'm, um, I don't think I'm responsible for about 20 circuits in total, and I'm doing all the Asian circuits now. So right, it's, uh, it's a very full plate. Yes. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And Brigitte, does she travel to many of the events with you? You're well, yes, when we go to some of the nicer ones, she's with me. <laughs> <laughs> the more exotic, not the Simmons Plains. <laughs> well, she's been to Simmons Plains. Oh, I'm sure she has. I've seen her there. Yes, I know that. But I was meaning that, yeah. you know, the ones that are, yeah, a bit more to offer than uh, possibly a brewery down the road. Well, uh, well being, coming to Europe is coming home for her. Because, yes, indeed. Uh, she's German. She's from Stuttgart, so... Yeah. Uh, There was a popular story just slipping into my role as being a motorsport fan. One of the early ones I heard about you was that your wife was introduced by Ronnie Peterson. No, not quite right. I met my wife uh, through a girlfriend of Mike Aylwood's. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, Another apocryphal story about uh, you and Ronnie Peterson is that you had the Ferrari drive in sports cars, very successful. Uh, Wonderful car to drive for, I understand. Yes, a wonderful team to drive for. Yeah, yeah. When when they're winning, certainly in those days, was wonderful. And you had a a great advantage to get that drive in that you had an identical physique or build to Ronnie Peterson. That's right. We also got on well, and I think that's yeah, really yeah, important of course. when you're yeah. when you're when, when you're teammates. Um, yeah. So uh, yes, we got on well. In fact, uh, I didn't really have a lot of friends, uh, drivers, racing drivers, because they were your arch enemy, I guess you'd say it. Yes. But uh, except in the case of Ronnie Peterson and uh, Brigitte and I were quite good friends with Ronnie and uh, his wife Barbara, very good close friends. Actually, we lived near each other, so we saw a fair bit of them. So we it worked well. With uh, uh, with Ronnie and I with Ferrari in '72, and then the following year I was with Carlos Reutemann. And it's strange because you don't really know these people until you get to drive with them, and suddenly you find, oh, they're not bad guys after all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lolle, I think his nickname was, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. Um, looking um, at your current role uh, in uh, supercars, um, the uh, how long do you think you can keep keep doing it? You had an unfortunate um, illness, accident, health something occurred in Perth where Michael Massey had to step up as your deputy. Um, yes, well, that was just I just had a stomach infection. 
Right, right. OK, um, just a one-off thing, yep. Yeah, a one-off, yeah, I would hope so. I, I'm not a fan of hospitals and doctors and whatever. Yep. So uh, I'm really there. Um, so, well, I don't know how long you, you go. What am I, 73 now? Uh, I'm still bombing along. Um, so it, it is, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm always t- I'm told you've got the job for as long as you like, as, as long as you want it. But I mean, there obviously comes a point when you start dribbling and uh, and forgetting things. Um, so, uh, and I hope I recognise that before then. Yeah. Um, and I've got a good deputy in Michael. Michael's also the race director for the uh, uh, they call it Super Two, I think now. Don't they? Yes. Super yes. Two. Yeah. So he's a, he's a capable young boy, and you just gain experience because at the end of the day, that's really what it is. It's all very well to know the rules and all the routine, but it's when it goes wrong that this experience counts. One of the other thing Michael Massey has as well is a, is a good grounding across the sport, the organisational, the sporting part of it, the judicial part of it. You know, he, he seems to have a very good grounding. I mean, remember meeting him very many years ago and being very impressed then. Yes. Yeah. Um, just sparking on that talk of drivers being involved in the official capacity, uh, do you see, I mean, the fact Craig Baird's coming to that job, a, a new man, um, that you would play a role in, in helping educate in the process? Well, uh, his role uh, is really, uh, his title is Driving Standard Observer, and that's uh, really his role. It's just to uh, be looking at incidents between drivers' cars, uh, and judging if there's someone at fault and, uh, and then working uh, and then passing that on, his view onto the stewards and the, the stewards making a decision as to uh, what the penalty was, um, what the penalty is. But we've been, we've had this um, position uh, for many, many years now. Started off with Colin Bond. With yes. Cars. Mm. It's interesting uh, that uh, uh, the FIA, some, since, since uh, we had Colin, has also introduced that role, and you see in Formula One they've got Derek Warwick and Danny Sullivan, Tom Christensen. Yes. Uh, much the much the same sort of much the same sort of position, and um, it was uh, sort of overdue. I think when it came to supercars, it was certainly overdue when it came to Formula One because you've got someone there who really does understand racing and understands going down into a corner and what it means. It is exactly. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Uh, um, just very quickly, how do you see the judicial system working this year? You know, it's, uh, there was evolved slightly with the way uh, the DSO's job was split, really. Yes, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's always continually improving, uh, and we're, we're, we never sit still and just assuming that uh, what we've got is good enough. Um, and uh, much the same with supercars, you're always looking at how you can improve things, but... Uh, uh, and also, uh, you know, what's helped tremendously um, in race control for us now is we have a lot more information coming in. We've got data, we've got, dilem- um, we've got information on the cars, the in-car cameras, not that they're live yet, but that's not far away. We'll have a live feed. Uh, we have a lot of help from television. We have tracking systems to manage where the cars are on the track. And so when you deploy the safety gate, you're not uh, guessing, you know exactly what to do. So that all just helps with managing the race, and, and uh, if there are penalties, arriving at uh, arriving at a, a decision uh, with more information. And what sort of shape do you see the Supercar Series having been involved, first of all, when it was the Australian Touring Car Championship in the late 80s, and then when it evolved through with Avesco and became Supercars? Um, how do you see the series, what sort of shape it's in? Listen, it's in very good shape. You know, we'd, we're probably in the middle of it. You don't really see it. And perhaps even in Australia, we don't uh, appreciate uh, what it is. But when I go overseas, the people are always uh, talking to me about it. I mean, it's broadcast uh, all over the world. And people are always uh, talking to me about it. What a wonderful series and fantastic. And the way you do this, the way you do that is great. And I wish we could do that here. So... Um, it's got an incredible standing, uh, as I say, incredible status in the world. And of course, places like Bathurst uh, help all of that because that's that's a circuit that's unique. Uh, Bathurst, um, Nurburgring, 
spa, you know, their, their circuits of the old style that, that uh, we, we're still able to use. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time, Tim. I understand you've got a flight to catch soon, so we'd better get, you get back to that. And Inside Supercars has enjoyed uh, listening and hearing an update on uh, your current health and where you plan to go with it, and that's great to hear. All right, thanks very much. Thank, thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. And after the break... We'll come back with our final thoughts on this week's Inside Supercars. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every, every year I see Jackie's Stewart Grand Prix and I just remind myself of, of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Brabham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Okay, your final thoughts for this week. Well, it has been an interesting one. Eugenia Rocker, right at the head of the show, was very interesting, saying that both the Formula 5000 Thunder, or Formula Thunder 5000, sorry, Chris, and the Super 5000s would be classified, as far as cams are concerned, as Formula Libras. And that's certainly not what was portrayed in the uh, press releases that were out this week. In fact, uh, I did read some quotes attributing James Warburton as having said they have the category rights management. And uh, Eugene was quite emphatic that there was no category rights to manage as they are um, not homologated series or they're not homologated cars, as it were. So I found that reporting quite interesting. But I've got a bit of a timeline for you, Tony, and uh, I hope you find this as interesting as I do. Now, the Formula Thunder, it was building up momentum. I know that there has been quotes that for Super 5000s was conceived back in 2014, 2015, but obviously Chris Lambden got his cars out onto the track on the 31st of March. Now, a simple thing to do is a trademark search to see what people were thinking about, and I checked the trademarks, Super 5000, was registered by a chap by the name of Anthony Hogarth. Now, if it's the same Anthony Hogarth that is the general legal counsel for supercars, he registered Super 5000 with IP Australia on the 1st of March 2016. Now, that lapsed, and another trademark was, uh, was registered by V8 Supercars Australia on the 29th of May. Now, that... Uh, that trademark, if you like, Tony, is uh, for the logo. And it talks about being a, a Class 41 motor racing. It also covers them off for motor racing, uh, sorry, for apparel, clothing, footwear, headgear, etc., etc. So if we, look at, uh, if we look at that, two very interesting um, trademarks that set a bit of a timeline as far as what, supercars and what uh, uh, the the business was thinking. So a first lodgement on the 1st of March in 2016 for the name Super 5000 and then the formal lodgement of what is now the logo on the 29th of May this year, remembering that the first unveiling of the Formula Thunder 5000 car was in and around the 30th of March in 2016, uh, sorry, 30th of March, and then, of course, the first test was on or about, or one of the public tests, I think, was on or about November. And from memory, it was at the Muscle Car Masters at Eastern Creek was the public testing where they had already done some testing at Eastern Creek and, and uh, sorry, at Phillip Island previously. So I just thought that timeline is, is quite an interesting one. So whilst we're hearing things about category management, about timelines on dates. And I, I didn't bother to go back to see when the uh, story came out about the board being presented with the, was it 2025 vision of supercars? But yeah. um, the, I think the trademarking of names is a very, very uh, deliberate and permanent action by the uh, people involved. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's certainly something that's going to be on the boil for some months to come. Um, and it'll be interesting. We will uh, try and follow up 
there have been stories about uh, the tub for the uh, Lola lookalike to be uh, was made in, in New Zealand. We're trying to track that information down. Interestingly, Eric Broadley, of course, the man who owned and started Lola back in the 1950s, he died recently. I, I was lucky enough to meet him, go to his house, sit in his lounge room and talk to his about his days with Frank Gardner and the development of the very first of those uh, side radiated Roller 5000s. Extraordinary time. And uh, it was certainly uh, fascinating that that car, which was one of those winningest cars of that era, the Roller T332. Um, and of course, interestingly, that uh, Frank Gardner would often talk about how he didn't want to be the fastest racing driver, just the oldest. <laughs> and yet he single-handedly... Uh, uh, saw the introduction of a car that resulted in more drivers getting the longer limp than any other racing car in history. Mm, yeah, indeed. It's uh, indeed. certainly very interesting. And I, and, and uh, once again, I hope everyone enjoyed the uh, chat with Craig Baird because uh, it was a very interesting view of how he's taken to the uh, newly named advisor job. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, that's it for another week of Inside Supercars. We hope you enjoy hearing these interviews and we'll look forward to you joining us the next week's show. More from them. Good night, Craig. Good night, Tony. Good night. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. Inside Supercars.